Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Gators Breakdown. The Gators Fan Podcast, because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. Gators Breakdown, episode 153, is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. And joining me this episode of Gators Breakdown, co-host and founder of ReadAndReaction.com is Will Miles. You can find him on Twitter at WillMiles. SEC. Well, uh, a whole lot of, of course, Gator stuff uh, from Atlanta, SEC Media Days. Uh, you know, good Mullen, a few players, uh, and uh, it was a good time uh, being up there in Atlanta uh, with other media members and stuff. But uh, did you, uh, how much did you get to catch up uh, on it live and then uh, catch back up with it later in the day? So uh, unlike you, I'm not a member of the media, so I did not get an opportunity <laughs> to uh, to catch much of it live. But certainly, uh, I caught all the tweets when I was looking at them, you know, around lunch, and then and then could come home and listen to what was said during the day, so, or you know, listen to it at night, what was said during the day. So I have a pretty good gist to what was said. There, I don't think there was anything too inflammatory. Nothing that we uh, maybe didn't expect. A few strong statements about the previous regime, but. Uh, you know nothing that we haven't heard from some of the some of the players who've already left the program. So uh, I don't know that it's anything all that controversial. But uh, you know, hey, it's 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 the start of the football season, man. We're like what six weeks away, something like that. Yeah, boy, yeah. I can't wait. Yeah, you know, the, being around it yesterday, yeah, for sure, it gets the, the juices flowing uh, for wanting to for just some some games to be played uh, when when talk around football is that's all year around. Uh, so yeah, we got there Monday. Uh, probably around three o'clock in Atlanta, and then I uh, found caught, caught up with Ben Troop. Uh, so uh, we interviewed him for TV and the podcast. Uh, got it, got him there, and then um, you know, kind of walked around, checked out the College Football Hall of Fame. I definitely recommend it for anybody who hasn't been yet or going to Atlanta. Uh, go make a trip there. Uh, kind of interactive stuff that they have going on, uh, and uh, I mean, just really neat in general. There's a lot of Gator stuff uh, in, in there. You know, with Florida being kind of one of the premier programs. Uh, and I think this thing, you know, being based in the South kind of helps. You know, I think they kind of cater to the to the Southern teams, even though it is the College Football Hall of Fame. Don't get me wrong, still stuff for a lot of other teams. But uh, if, if you're a Gator fan, definitely go check it out. Uh, uh, a lot of things to do there. And then uh, Tuesday, you know, woke up early and uh, met up with Peter Burns from the SEC Network. And everybody can, you know, check these interviews out on SoundCloud, Gators Breakdown. Uh, soundcloud.com slash Gators Breakdown. All those interviews there. And then, of course, you know, we get them, got to meet with Mullen, Jefferson, Ivy, uh, and Reese. And it was a, a pretty good time. Um, I might, might have stayed too long at the bar on Monday night. <laughs> all, all I know is it was it was refreshing to see your tweet this afternoon about having to mow the lawn. You know, you've been, you've been hobnobbing with all these big wigs and come home. And it's, it's good to know that your wife is still making you do the chores around the house, even though you've, even though you've really made it, buddy. Yeah, live convention fast, and that's what it was. And uh, it's my wife's thirtieth birthday uh, this weekend, so uh, got to get the you know we'll have some people over and we'll head out uh, around town in Jacksonville. But uh, got to get the yard and in the house in in order uh, for that coming up. But yeah, you know, drove back from Atlanta uh, after we did a live shot for uh, Channel Four here in W uh, in Jacksonville, WJXT, and uh, hey, surprise, we got Dan Mullen live. He was walking his way into the Jordan event, walked right by us, and then. Uh, Steve McLean, uh, let him come over here and, and answer a couple questions that we had. So that was a nice surprise. 
there. So we had Mullen 101 for, you know, a couple minutes. So that was, that was pretty cool. Uh, then left Atlanta around 7, got back into Jacksonville around 1, 1.30. I was in bed at 2 o'clock. So I'm kind of worn out. I'm kind of worn out. But it was it, it was good. No complaining. Uh, if, if, if I'm going to be tired, that, that's the way to do it. <laughs> well, if, if, if my Twitter feed is any indication, the Jordan unveiling was, uh, was, was higher priority than, 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 than the media day that you were tweeting pictures of shoes and people were already emptying their bank accounts, man, you would not, I wish I had the number, uh, but yeah, you are, you, you are right. All with all the football talk that we had. The picture of the Jordans that fans could actually buy was the most popular thing by far that I tweeted. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, man, it it, it still confuses me. I guess I'm old having a basketball logo on the football stuff. But uh, hey, if if the fans like it, if the uh, if the players like it, then I'm all for it, especially if it brings more recruits. Right, and then uh, it was funny. I periscoped the thing as well. Uh, It kind of gave the uh, followers of ours uh, a nice up close view of it. So. There was some Jordan Twitter account out there, not the official one, but uh, it was kind of dedicated to the Jordan brand and all that. We had two hundred and thirty thousand followers, and they took they took stills, they took uh, photos from the Periscope showing all the different Jordan shoes. I had to uh, mute that because the phone was going absolutely crazy. <laughs> <laughs> See, and my favorite tweet of the night was just Walmart owning Tennessee and, oh. <laughs> and tweeting a gif of the Franks bomb last year to win the game. That was pretty, that was my favorite tweet of the night. What was it? Something like speaking of bargain bin or something for digging? Yeah, for something? So, oh, some God. Tennessee fan made fun of a bargain bin being at Walmart, <laughs> and uh, Walmart fired right back with the. Uh, with the play of Franks throwing the bomb last year against Tennessee, so uh, it shut that guy up pretty quick. Man, I tell you, that was that was elite trolling by Walmart. <laughs> hey, man, I'll, I'll I'll go there this weekend because of it. They have they have earned they yes. have earned my money this weekend. And you know what, Tennessee fans, they can't get away from it. They got to go there anyway. <laughs> that's that's date that's date night. Oh man, I'm I'm staying as far away from that as I can. I I'll I, leave it at that. I, I'm I'm heading there in September for a game, so <laughs> so I need to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> Hopefully I don't get you in trouble now. Eh, you know, whatever. I'll 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 take the beating. <laughs> all right, we'll get into media days, but before that, remember you can find all your Gators Breakdown episodes on news4jacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. There you'll find all the Gators Breakdown episodes as well as articles from the News for Jack Sports team. Everything from Media Day we've done the last couple of days, all the audio uh, that we've posted all there, newsforjacks.com slash gators breakdown. Also, you can listen to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube if you want the video version. And using those services, please share, rate, review the show, let Gator Nation know what they're getting with Gators Breakdown. And on social media, if you haven't done so by now, follow Gators Breakdown on Twitter and Facebook where you can interact with us a good bit. More on Twitter than Facebook, but um, I post everything on Facebook too if that's your preference. So, will the prevailing theme and thought uh, from, from the Gator players were they're ready to bounce back. You know, it, it was an embarrassment last year. Four and seven is not the Gator standard. And, you know, the energy and the buy-in is there. You know, and, and talking to uh, a lot of people, and, you know, we've been around college football long enough. When a new hire is made, the first thing that is always said is that the energy is better. The buy-in is there. But it probably actually holds some water with this Gator program right now. Knowing what we know about the past regime and knowing what what was not done under Jim McElwain. Well, yeah, I mean, after the Michigan game, there was just really no energy at all coming from him, at least at the podium, and 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 in some cases, leaving his players to ask questions that he and and Nussmeier were not <laughs> were not answering. And so, I can understand why they would uh, why they would bristle at that and why there'd be a renewed energy. I mean, you know. He spent way more energy um, defending himself against the shark accusations than he did defending his players after some of the games last year. So, uh, I mean, th- that's what I remember from Media Day last year is his uh, is his uh, unreasonable reaction to the questions about the shark meme. So, uh, at least we didn't have anybody questioning Mullen about the sharks. And uh, and yeah, I mean. It, I think it's pretty clear that there's a new energy with the program. I think you always get that when there's a transition. Mullen clearly wants to be at Florida, which I think is something that some people questioned about McElwain, particularly in the last year. Um, There were rumors about him potentially looking for jobs out West. 
just you know not feeling appreciated with the SEC with the SEC East championships that sort of stuff. And I think Mullen gets it from the standpoint of you know he's talking SEC championships and national championships. He's not talking about winning the East. I mean he's talking about that as a pathway to those things, but he's not setting the East as a goal. And I don't think he's going to. He he understands that that is not going to uh, that is not going to uh, satisfy the fan base. Right. Now I've been troop about that too. Of you know about patience in the fan base and he kind of reiterated something that you said before Dan Mullen's getting paid six million dollars so this is not you know th- this is the University of Florida you're getting paid big bucks you're going to be expected to win and expected to win pretty quick now I know most Gator fans are are, are not expecting uh, to go out there and win the SEC East in year one and, and go pe- and go compete and go beat Alabama and, and go to the playoff you know I think you know for most part that the fan base is We'll, we'll give Dan Mullen some time, uh, but eventually, you know, I, I think fans will be patient year one, but uh, eventually it's going to have to get there. And, you know, but also, you know, kind of going back to the whole energy thing, you know, good for some of the players also. And CC Jefferson said this, that, you know, that they did put a lot of, a lot of it on themselves as well. You know, going back to that Georgia game and being down uh, three scores very early. And he's like, man, what happened? You know, this is not what we do here. And, and of course that game was already well and out of hand. Uh, and then, you know, the Missouri game, the very next week, David Reese had to, to, to call out the teammates and all that stuff. And they kind of finished the season on the way there, but you're know, good for these players also realizing that, you know, and I do think they kind of fed off the, the negative energy of McElwain. They've, uh, there's no CC Jefferson said it best. There's no moping around anymore, and I think they took the energy that Jim McElwain was putting off, and it really just affected the whole team. Oh, I I, I think that's probably true. I think you know when when you look at somebody who's got a process that you think is flawed when they're your boss, immediately you start questioning what's going on, and I'm sure there was a lot of finger pointing going on. Just from the standpoint of they had Frank start the first game and then they immediately ripped him out and put in Zaire. And then Zaire didn't see the field again until what the Missouri game later on. So, um, you know, clearly the process I think was, was, was something that you could question. And I'm sure the players were questioning as well. And then you also had sort of the, the coaches throwing the players under the bus and the players having to, having to be accountable for that. So, um, good for them for saying that you know, they hold a part in it, but I don't think anybody is going to, um, you know, anybody's going to blame them for the situation they were put in last year is a tough situation. And, you know, I look forward to seeing these guys come out. And one of the things they did say is that, you know, the seniors who came back came back because they had sort of a chip on their shoulder because of the way um, last season ended and they didn't want to end their college careers like that. And, and, you know, that, that's a big factor that you motivate yourself through that and that you get stronger and you get, um, and, and really a four and seven season, um, the draft projections for those guys, I don't think is what they expected coming into their junior season. So now they can build that back up during their senior year. Yeah. And that was the question I asked both CC and, and Martez was them coming back. You know, was it to a chance? And I agree with you. It had more probably to do with the draft process, but you know, they could have went and tested it and, and got some money. Uh, but, you know, they, I, I think they do want to better themselves. You know, and part of it also, you know, was it to do with the sour taste of last season? And this is a, a better chance, another chance to end your career on a better note. And it's talk about on field. Uh, and I'll talk about it later. CC says this defense suits him, uh, similar defense to what he played in, in high school. And uh, you know, Martez comes back with uh, an offensive line that he's played with. They do have to get better, but the, ex- at least the experience is there. And we, we know that part's there now. But can you build on it? Can you take that next step? And, and this new system with you know, this, this offensive line was pretty good at run blocking last year. This is a run-heavy offense, a run-first offense. So maybe the, both of those guys have, have improved their stock a little bit by playing in these new systems. Absolutely. I mean, and whenever you go four and seven, if you pop on the film, you'll see plays where you can say, ooh, that guy needs to improve on that. Um, I think if all you do is pop on the Georgia tape, you, you can say that about a lot of different a lot of different areas and a lot of different players. And so, you know, you are what you put on tape, and that's what the NFL is going to find when they're looking at it and they're trying to decide, hey, does this guy have the motor? Is this guy going to be able to going to be able to play three downs. I mean, so Jefferson has the ability to show people this year that he can play with his hand in the dirt and he can play up, um, you know, and he can play up sort of at a linebacker position being coverage a little bit. And those are the types of skills that are really valuable in the NFL, that sort of versatility. So same thing with Ivy. I think he was projected as sort of a, a late, you know, maybe seventh rounder and undrafted free agent. And he's going to have the ability, even with just sort of a, 
uh, a solid season to move into that third or fourth round based on his size and his ability and that sort of stuff. Um, whereas he probably wouldn't have had that opportunity. So certainly I'm sure that some of them coming back had to do with, with their NFL draft prospects. Certainly, um, Mullen has made it a point to talk about putting his players in positions to succeed rather than trying to fit them into a specific system. And so if that's true and, and these guys can, can see that can have their strengths accentuated, it's going to do nothing but good things for them. Well, and talking about energy, Dan Mullen in, in his custom Jordans and uh, CC Jefferson said he wanted, he wanted to take him from him on the flight. Uh, could have had, could have had some, could have had some fun with that story. I was going to say, is that an impermissible benefit? I don't <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if that's a recruiting violation. But, uh, <laughs> give it to they're getting, Jordan, they're getting Jordans anyway. <laughs> they they get all sorts of swag. I don't think that's the problem. But right, uh, right. It, it's interesting. I, I'm not sure that it necessarily that it's not a look I can pull off wearing Jordans with my suit. But uh, no. everybody seems to enjoy Mullen doing it, and uh, you know it, it's been consistent. It's not something he's just done once. Right. He, he does it all the time. So hey, more power to him. Absolutely. Uh, so going to, to Mullen, uh, he was asked about quarterbacks and their relationship to winning. And uh, Mullen made it known that winning percentage is a very big stat for him. And I, I didn't know where this question was going when it was asked, but uh, Mullen, Mullen made more sense of it for, for me. And he, and he laid it out by, quote, winners win. That's what they do. Uh, he went on to mention Dak Prescott, Alex Smith, Tim Tebow, all one in high school, one in college. One in the NFL. Now, Tebow's didn't last long, of course, but but he still won while he was there. Uh, and it's a stat that Mullen says he looks for in a quarterback, among others. And that stat definitely correlates. He uh, says, quote, if I'm recruiting a high school quarterback and he doesn't win at all, what's going to change when he gets to college? What is the next step and how he's going to learn and how to win there? So immediately my mind switched to this year's quarterback battle when, when Mullen started discussing this. So I'm not trying to put words in, in, in Mullen's mouth and even say this is the case, but the first person I thought of right away was Kyle Trask. You know, not a highly rated quarterback, didn't start, didn't have a lot of stats to his name, doesn't have that win-loss record to, to point to as a starting quarterback. So I wonder if this comes into play here, given that Franks has experience, but he didn't win last year. And Mullen says winners win, but you also have another quarterback that hasn't even played a snap in college, didn't play a whole lot in high school. So where has Kyle Trask learned to win? And I'm not saying he isn't winning the job based off of this, but you know, hearing this from Mullen really got me thinking of how much value Mullen was putting on that stat. So you certainly know how to rile me up because <laughs> – <laughs> this, this is the kind of quote that drives someone who actually dives into the statistics pretty heavily kind of nuts. Um, so I hope that's and not... I, did, and I didn't mean for that either, by the way. I, I know, but it, it, it's, it's robbed me up a little bit. So, so when you look at any sort of evaluation, you want to look at more than one metric, I think is the first thing. The and second, said that too. It, was, it was one among many. Yeah. So the second thing is, is that I think this was sort of a a response to a pretty bad question where a coach where it sounded like the reporter was asking, you know, are, is it OK to count a win if a guy comes in, plays one play and gets injured, but he gets a win? Um, you know, does that hinder how you look at win percentage or something like that? So in fairness to Mullen, I think he was tr trying to answer the question while not telling, while not saying that's a stupid question. Um, yeah, this, and isn't, then, this isn't baseball in a pitcher. <laughs> <laughs> well, even that wins is a terrible metric for pitching. Um, but what I would say is that it's sort of a chicken and the egg argument, right? That if a quarterback is really, really good at a lot of different things, chances are his team is going to win a little bit. I mean, you know, the Peyton Manning goes to Denver and all of a sudden Denver's really good. Mm -hmm. If Tom Brady leaves New England, New England's going to be terrible. Baker Mayfield left Oklahoma this year, and I'll tell you, that is not a team that I'm going to be betting on. That's for sure, because Kyler Murray may be, may be really, really good, but he's not going to be as good as Baker Mayfield. Or if he is, he's going to win the Heisman Trophy. So um, I, I think it's one of those things where, yeah, I mean, a, a really good quarterback can help his team win and help his team win consistently. That's true. But there are a lot of, but just because a team wins doesn't necessarily mean that it's an excellent quarterback. I mean, if you've got Adrian Peterson in the backfield in high school, the quarterback may be terrible, but it doesn't matter. You just hand the ball to Peterson, you're going to win the game. Um, so again, I, I think, I think this response was probably something that was sort of, um, spearheaded by the, by the question. And then you just look at, uh, 
Uh, hopefully Mullen looks at more stats than just winning percentage because uh, I, I don't think that that necessarily is the uh, is the be all end all of quarterback evaluation. I will say that I'd rather him look at winning percentage than look at arm strength. And so, you know, a lot of people look at a guy who's got a cannon and say, oh, we can we can teach him accuracy. I don't think that's necessarily true. And he did talk a little bit about that, about which skills are hardest to teach and which skills are easiest to teach and making decisions based off of that. And that I think is a really good insight into how you would pick a quarterback is, you know, if you believe you can teach someone with a strong arm to be accurate, or if you believe you can teach someone who's accurate to make the appropriate reads, um, which one's easier to teach, which one can you get up to speed quicker in Mullen's offense? Those are the types of things that we're going to see as we go forward, because if Frank starts, I think it's clearly going to be a, uh, I think clearly then Mullen is answering the question that he thinks he can teach accuracy. Whereas if Trask starts, I think he's probably um, Trask has a decent arm, but nothing like Frank's. And I think at that point, then he's saying, Hey, I think I can teach some of the finer points of quarterback play, but I need the accuracy to start with. Yeah. I don't think, you know, him answering that question. I I don't think he was pinpointing at anything. That's just where my mind went. It like, like, huh? how, how, How does this, correlate to to this year's quarterback battle so yeah i don't think it was a you know just because kyle trask hadn't played but that's that's where my mind went i don't think dan mullen was was talking about kyle trask or felipe frank's not winning or anything like that but yeah because he didn't recruit either one of those kids you know he's he's stuck with what he's got here and only one he's recruited uh, was emory jones and and we know the situation of, of him not being able to play uh and we'll get into that in just a second uh or not be not 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 being able to play but hasn't played yet uh just because he's a true freshman and you got a guy in france who has the experience trask who doesn't have have it at all so i don't necessarily think it was you know a shot at them that but that's just where my mind went and if if anything comes out of this quarterback battle can i go back to this and say okay well maybe franks won the job because mullen just is afraid to put trask in 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 this situation well if we're going to talk about quarterbacks who are winning i think you got to go to emory I mean, at, at that point, he he won at Hurd High School, and and certainly, um, you know, probably in many respects carried them to some of those things. And so, from a winning pedigree, he's the guy I go to immediately out of the three. Um, you know, Trask played on winning teams, but wasn't the starter. Right. And then, and then Franks played on some played on some good teams in in high school, but then obviously struggled last year. So if you if you were going to take that quote and try to read something into it i would say emory jones is probably mm-hmm. the guy that i would look at and say well that's where he's leaning if you looked at that but again i, I don't think that we should read too much into no. this i would imagine that mullen is far more sophisticated than just looking at winning <laughs> percentage of the quarterbacks when deciding who he's going to start absolutely absolutely there so um nothing that caught my eye and i was going to ask this question before somebody else did and i'm really interested in this four game redshirt rule and, and what dan mullen thought about it and if he would give us uh, any insight of how he would go about this rule change uh now true freshman uh or i guess any season basically or in, any year you know if you play you can play up to four games and still get a redshirt uh so experience as as young guys just most of the time how this is going to come into play uh, and Mullen thinks it really helps the game and the student athlete says that uh, really helps from putting players in bad situations. Uh, if there's an opportunity players can go in the game uh, now that he, he'll, he'll think about it more, now more and give them that shot. You know, if they weren't ready at the beginning of the season and just needed more time, well, now you can get them some playing time at the end of the season. If the opportunities are there uh, and, and go get some experience and, Mullen admits he's had a lot of different thoughts about it and how they'll go about it. But like he says, you can only dress so many guys, so you still have to kind of plan who you want to use ahead of time. Uh, and Emory Jones, I think, you know, would be one of the biggest proponents of this. Uh, but, you know, him still being a, a quarterback, I don't think Mullen would just throw him out there at the beginning of the season, whether he can play him or not. I don't think the red shirt really comes into play uh, yet, you know, Mullen has said multiple times he's not going to throw a quarterback out there until he's ready. So, at what point is Emory far enough along to where Mullen wants to play him? Is it how well he can throw the ball? Is it uh, he's a threat with his legs, and that's enough to get him going into the game? Uh, well, now you have four games to kind of play and tinker with. Once you get it in your mind that he's good enough to go out there and play, uh, you don't, you know, you don't have to keep him or other players on the sideline because you're afraid to play them and, and for one play or one game and, and burn a redshirt season. So if at the beginning of the season, 
then that's great. Evaluate where he is and then go from there. If he's not ready, then maybe he sneaks into a couple games here and there uh, and, and still gets the experience. Yeah, I, I'll be interested, and especially for Emory Jones, how Mullen goes about this four-game redshirt process. Yeah, it's a really interesting question for a lot of these coaches, not just Mullen. Um, how are you going to play with these guys? I mean, because you can imagine Alabama last year, um, you know, with Tagovailoa would have would have chosen different ways of um, of maybe integrating a man, or or you know, as a, as opposed to the way they they did in the past. Or you know, you can imagine with Fromm. Maybe they go back to Eason after a couple of games because they can save a year of eligibility, um, which would have been an interesting discussion to have when it came, when it came to Georgia last year. Um, I, I think that I think it's an interesting question because if you say, "Hey, we're going to save him for the last four games," then you're putting him in against Missouri, South Carolina, Idaho, and Florida State. And is that necessarily where you want that true freshman to be getting his first reps? Maybe Idaho would make some sense. So may, maybe you go Idaho, Florida State in a bowl game. Mm-hmm. I mean, but if you're going to a bowl game, he's not playing those last three mm-hmm. games. And, and so um, it, it's going to be really interesting to see what they do. I mean, I'm of the mind that you that if he's the best player, if he helps if if he helps your program long term the best, you start him day one. And if four games in, it's clear that he's not your guy, then you can always take him out and redshirt him the rest of the year and just let the other guys take hold. But um, it's going to be really interesting because it, it does it, – the game theory becomes a little bit more interesting, right? So you, you, you have to decide how you're going to do that. And you got to decide how you're going to do it with all the guys. I mean, the running backs. Um, you know, do you spread the carries early on to make sure that Scarlett and Pirine and those sorts of and Davis are healthy once you get into the teeth of the SEC schedule? Like, I think there's real value in giving ten carries to Pierce and Clement, you know, the first couple of games and and keeping the Knicks off of the guys like Scarlett and and, and Pirine. Same thing at the wide receiver position. I mean, you take Jacob Copeland and you put him in the first couple of games, see what he's got. I, I actually think that it would probably be more beneficial to get the guy's time against Charleston Southern and Idaho mm-hmm. than it would to thrust them into a game against LSU. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see what the strategy would be. Um, I'm not exactly sure what my opinion is in, ter- in terms of how they should do this because I do think that there's value. I mean, if nothing else, you need to get the guys four games worth of experience that you think are going to be your future your future stars in the program. Um, just having them sit on the bench doesn't make any sense. Get them their full four games and let them play it. The question is, which four games are those, and do you leave them in there um, if they're excelling four games in, or do you say, nope, we're going to pull them back right. like they do in baseball, right? They don't bring up the guys until like May or June because that's when their service time clock starts and the teams get an extra year out of them if they do that. So they sacrifice the first sort of month or two of the season to get an extra year before the player is up for a contract extension. And it's sort of the same thing in college. You're really getting almost four and a half years of these guys. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to blow one of those. Um, blow one of those by by having him play the entire year. Yeah, and speaking of Emory and why it's so interesting is, you know, Mullen doesn't have – Mullen's history, he shows he doesn't play young quarterbacks, you know, freshman quarterbacks a whole lot. Could that have been because, you know, he didn't want to burn red shirts? He wanted to be able to, to let them get experience and all that. Now you get game experience. Now you get four games of experience. And I'll, I want to see the change. It's kind of hard to judge – year one anyway what this has done because the rule changed but plus Emory Jones is the ideal fit for his offense so we don't really wouldn't know if this would have taken place anyway <laughs> but as the years go by and Jalen Jones comes in and he's the next quarterback in how much playing time he gives a freshman where he played three four games where he get more snaps than what Dan Mullen has shown to get that he gives younger quarterbacks that he at his time at Mississippi State so uh, that, that that's kind of where Right now, it's probably going to take some time to get the, the full answer. Uh, but still, you know, how much – if Emory doesn't start at all at any point in the season, still, how much playing time does he give him? It, it'd be nice if Florida can start blowing out some teams that like they used to doing and get some young guys some playing time. That's part of it as well. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm really interested in, in seeing if Emory Jones doesn't start, how much playing time he gets because of this rule. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a significant rule change. Just like some of the, just like the early signing period in uh, in recruiting, the early signing period is changing. I think the way some of these guys recruit, and it's changing some of the strategies. 
And I think the same thing applies here is that you're, there's going to be an opportunity to bring in guys who you believe have the potential to be high tier guys in your program, but you need them there for four years, or maybe they're not strong enough the first six weeks of the season, or they haven't caught up on the playbook enough the first six weeks of the season. He said this specifically about the running backs, that they're not going to play until they realize that um, their position does not just include receiving the handoff and running with the ball. And he's talking about pass protection, right? And so, you know, that may be one of the things too, is it, it allows you to dangle a carrot out there for the guys who are freshmen, um, where you can say, hey, when you earn playing time, I'll give you your four games and you'll still have that year. Right. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was me to ask the question about the running backs because, like I said, this four game red shirt, that, that was my question. It was going to be more tailored toward Emory, but it, my, I, had to, I had to punt. And uh, and come up with a running back question. So <laughs> I'm glad that got in there because uh, you know, and he did. And Mullen also made sure in that response to make sure as far route running and and catching uh, as well for these running backs. And going back and looking at some Mississippi State games, you know, we had some time off because of the Fourth of July holiday and all that stuff. And yeah, SEC Network has been showing uh, some old Mississippi State games, and it, it is. Uh, I found it. I didn't remember it so much back in his in his time at Florida, but just how much he uses those running backs out of the backfield to catch the ball. Yeah, you could really see it in the LSU game last year. In yeah. fact, the backbreaking touchdown was a throw to the running back mm-hmm. who was streaking down the field. Um, you know, you saw it a little bit with Dempson Rainey. Um, much less so when he had Emmanuel Moody and, and, and Keeson Moore and guys like that in the backfield. Um, but obviously when Percy Harvin was back there, they used him quite a bit um, more in a running capacity. I don't remember him being a huge threat out of the backfield. Um, in that case, I think they sort of used the tight end in that role. So whether it was, uh, whether it was Hernandez or some other tight end using him in that role, um, as as opposed to a running back. But in that case, it's because Hernandez was incredibly gifted for that position. So um, I think, again, this sort of goes to Mullen's comment about, you know, showing the guys the tape and say, especially the quarterbacks and saying, this is not the offense you're going to run. We're going to, you know, and during, during the fall practice or during, I'm sorry, during spring, basically he said that he threw a bunch of stuff at them and they're going to evaluate it and say, okay, what is Frank's good at? What is Trask good at? What is, what is Jones good at? And then they're going to ask them to build on that in the, in the fall. And I think the same thing applies for the running backs, right? They're going to look at what Pierce is good at. They're going to look at what Clement's good at, look at what Scarlett's good at. And then they're going to build on that rather than saying, why don't you pass protect? They'll bring in a guy who's specifically a third down back who has that part down. And so, um, you know, or they just won't put him in a situation where he's got complex reads that make the pass protection more difficult. He just has an assignment, and all he has to do is carry it out. So um, that was a really encouraging thing to hear from Mullen is is that he was talking a lot about square pegs and round holes and making sure that he adjusts so those players don't have to. What you mean to tell me he would he would probably adjust to Treon Harris or or, or Malik Zaire or well, something? I think like I think he I think he might have run them a little bit more than. Uh, <laughs> Some of the previous coaching staffs may have. Uh, you know, and speaking of of the running backs and, and catching the ball in the backfield, as you just mentioned that that one play, uh, Martez Ivy was asked about um, uh, the offense, and uh, I believe it was our, our good friend Thomas Goldcamp who asked him the question, and, and Ivy responded with, "This offense is one hundred times better in creativity." So, uh, and the one play you were talking about, Will, it was a third and one. It was Mississippi State versus LSU last year. Third and one, third and two is really third and short. And Mississippi State was just running the ball down LSU's throat. And they were showing run. Uh, and the wide, the running back was out wide. He motions in. Uh, and it looks like he's going to be a, a blocker. He kind of fakes the block, gets behind the, the DBs, and he's wide open for like a you know 50 yard touchdown or so. So, you know, it, that's part of it. It's part of that creativity. And, and uh, one more point about the creativity part of it that Ivy spoke of was, and something we shouted from the mountaintops is get your playmakers, the ball. <laughs> well, I mean, it should be obvious, but it wasn't necessarily <laughs> obvious last year. And uh, you know, but it was obvious who the playmakers were because the scripted drives for the first, you know, the first, drive of each half they always got the ball to the guy they wanted to and then for the rest of the halves usually ignored them but um 
Hey, it's great to hear. I think Mullen's history is that he's creative. Um, I wrote an article right after he was hired talking about the creativity of the offense when he was at Florida compared to Adazio, who took over in 2009. And you could see differences in, you know, the statistics looked eerily similar. But when they got down to the red zone, because of some of the creativity, Mullen was able to score touchdowns where Adazio had to settle for, for field goals. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, if the players are more confident in what they're going to do, then then they're going to be able to execute better. And one of the things that you heard last year, if you talk to people who know more about football than I do, um, was that there was a lot of complexity in McIlwain's offense and that it was not necessarily incorrect. It was just something that was really difficult to 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 translate that that it was going to that it required an awful lot of time for the players to understand what was going on. And so to to execute meant you had to have everyone execute in concert all at the same time. One part, one part breaks down and all of a sudden the whole play falls apart. I think we saw that a lot last year um, in the Michigan game in particular, you know, there would be one block missed. There'd be one pass protection missed. There'd be one guy who runs the wrong route. There'd be one throw that the quarterback doesn't make when he should. And all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're punting instead of converting that first down. And, and so Mullins offense, I think is simpler but off of that simplicity has some complexity um, to try to trick the defense. And that play you're talking about is a perfect example where the quarterback didn't have to get it. I mean, he just had to get it within 10 yards of the receiver. Yeah. I mean, he's wide open. And so I don't recall that happening last year where the play design got the guy open and, it, and he was the first read. There were some plays where people criticized Franks for not coming off of his initial read because somebody came open on the backside. I certainly remember that. Mm-hmm. But there, there, I don't remember a play except against Kentucky. <laughs> where there were, you stole it. I was about to say it. <laughs> but, but, but again, that wasn't play design. That was Kentucky's no, exactly. defense didn't guard anybody. Yeah. Um, and, oh come and again, on, Michael Wayne confused him. That's all it was. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we'll, we'll 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 give him we'll give him the two for that game, and and then blame him for everything else. <laughs> but <laughs> but anyway, you you look at Mullen, you look at the schemes that Mullen Mullen has, and you see guys open if the quarterback's going to the right spot. And that was sort of my point with the idea of potentially bringing in Joe Burrow. Was that Burrow seems to be able to do that pretty well. Um, we'll see whether Franks or Trask or Jones can do that, and that'll be one of the interesting things to watch this season. Well, it was also kind of thrown out there by the rest of the media world that uh, C.C. Jefferson was was a highlight of the, of the event, and he had a smile on his face the entire time. I uh, was really happy to be there, and you know, I got to know of, of him a little bit, you know, being here close to Jacksonville. He's from Baker County uh, there, so, you know, we covered him a, a good bit. We got to talk to him a lot. Uh, he's come a long way and just, you know, being, uh, and of course, he's a lot older. He's going through college uh, and being able to talk to the media and says what he wants to say, but there was a lot of media members out there impressed with C.C. Jefferson. Yeah, I mean every everything that he said, I think had a purpose behind it. Very clearly, the maturity of wanting to come back to college, and even if it is for his NFL draft stock, to say I'm coming back because I got a chip on my shoulder and I want to prove something, and may, and maybe that's how he really feels, and and I'm sure there's a there's a component of that too. But yeah, very very polished, and and I think uh, I think you know just seems like a good guy. You know, again, I don't know him, but but came across very very positively. And the funny story, those local media got to meet with uh, the players and coaches before they went down to the uh, ESPN car wash. And he says uh, he wasn't supposed to tell his mom that he was going to be part of the uh, part of the Gators crew to co- go to SAC Media Days. He goes, well, I couldn't keep it a secret. I had to call my mom anyway and tell her. He goes, I think I heard her scream all the way from Gainesville. So <laughs> <laughs> That's an awesome story, man. I mean, yeah. this is all supposed to be fun. I know there are times that, that we're critical, and, and it's because we enjoy the, enjoy the sport and want people to, to know what's going on. But, that, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, that guy's a Gator, and I'm happy he is. Yeah, I, I did get some questions of uh, why didn't you ask about recruiting? There's a time and a place. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, that, that is not it. <laughs> no, I mean, again, it, it's it's a it's a glorified press conference. It a lot of the things we heard from Mullen are things that we've heard during his speaking tour. Yeah. Um, certainly, those are sort of his polished points. And until he's played a game, those points aren't going to change. And and poking the bear on the recruiting front, probably not the right thing to do at that time. And uh, and rightfully so, right? This is supposed to be a celebration of the SEC, a celebration of Florida preparation for the year. And and it's not a time to be critical. It's a time to say, Hey, what's different from last year and, and you know, what's going to make your season successful. 
Yeah, Ben. You know, we hit just hit on it just a little bit earlier, but you know, I asked CC about his role in this defense, and as I said, three four defense in high school, coming off the edge, uh, much like he did. But he also said, you know, kind of making the same kind of checks and calls that he did there. So I wonder if this means just kind of a faster start for him in, in this defense, being able to have a little bit of fun, have a ha, being able to be a little more aggressive, having some similar experience in it. And as you said, you know, he, he gets to he gets to showcase both sets uh, of his skills uh, now in, in this. And just we want to compare him to Jarvis Jones in, in that Todd Grantham defense from Georgia years ago. If it could be anything close to that, you know, Florida's going to have a real weapon on their hands and creating turnovers, creating tackles for loss, which CC already excels at. You know, led the team uh, with 13 and a half, I believe, uh, last year. So I, I really do think you know, in the spring, you, you were hoping we would hear more about CC taking off in this. Uh, and I kind of go back to, you know, just mentioning him in high school, but uh, knowing that. And you know, not necessarily hearing a whole lot about spring. You you heard Jacopo Light's name uh, brought up, but you know, and then we heard about CC's injury uh, in, in the spring game. Doesn't seem to be a big deal now. I do uh, I do wonder how fast it now will will take him to to take off in this defense. Yeah, it might sound counterintuitive, but I think the place you have to look at is nose tackle. So if somebody like Daryl Slayton can really make the can move the pile and people have to start double teaming him, then that really frees up Jefferson or whoever's on the edge to really wreak havoc in Grantham's offense or in Grantham's defense. Um, if the defensive linemen other than Jefferson are getting pushed around, he's gonna struggle because just because of the way that the defense is designed, you really need someone up front to hold down the fort. And if he's having to crash down on running backs, um, then it prevents him from being able to rush the passer quite as much as he as he would like. Um, so I, I, again, I, I think I think Jefferson clearly is probably the most skilled guy that they've got on the defense right now. But he needs the guys up front to sort of free him up to roam a lot. Like you think about the nose tackle um, freeing up the linebacker. You know, if you think of defenses with Zach Thomas or or Keekley in Carolina, a lot of their scheme is having a nose tackle who can occupy multiple blockers to allow the linebacker to go side to side. I think the same thing applies for Jefferson on the outside is that you need a defensive line that can occupy the blockers so that he has the ability to roam. That was exactly what Thomas Goldcamp said yesterday when I was talking to him about this. So there we go. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it is. Daryl Slayton got good reviews out of spring. You, you hope that uh, he can continue picking that up. Conliff takes the next step. I, I really like those guys as recruits, and you know, I was hoping we'd get to see more of them last year, but kind of a lost season uh, when it was all said and done. So you know, hopefully those guys uh, now come in with this new staff and, and can come in and, and be players of note. Uh, you know, Kerry Clark, nothing special, but nothing disappointing either. You know, he's the kind of just consistent, straight line. You kind of know what you're going to get, but with Slayton and Conliff, you hope, they're just a step above. Yeah, well, we've talked a little bit last year about the linebackers and some of the struggles they had in coverage. And certainly there are a couple of linebackers coming in um, in this recruiting class who are going to contribute this year and contribute probably pretty early. But one of the things that you do when you when you move Jefferson sort of into that hybrid role is now he sort of occupies a space that one of the linebackers would have occupied before. And so it does give you an opportunity to, to maybe – at least have more versatility where you don't just always have the three linebackers lining up in a four, three, like they did all last year. Now you have the option of, Hey, CC's going to come rushing or he's going to drop back into coverage or cover up a gap. And he's athletic enough to do that. Oh, well, I'm, I'm wore out. <laughs> uh, earlier this week, you posted your uh, latest article, read reaction and quarterback play uh, once comes into to play here. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I, I think we can all look at the recruiting and say whatever we want. Bill certainly said his piece earlier in the week, and and I've I've written enough about it that <laughs> that I'm going to let it go at this point, at least a little bit. Um, but we know sort of where the recruiting class is coming in, and it's not coming in at an Alabama or a Georgia level. It's coming in probably at an Oklahoma or a Clemson level. And that's one of the discussion points that people will make is that, well, you know, if you look at the five teams that made that, you know, the top five in the AP poll at the end of last year, it was Alabama, Georgia, Oklahoma, Clemson, and Ohio State. And the recruiting ranking for Alabama is number one <laughs> over the last four years heading into that 2017 season. For Georgia, it was 5.8. For Oklahoma, it was 14th. For Clemson, it was 13th. And for Ohio State, it was fourth. So it's not a real surprise that we see Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State in that in that framework. But the fact that you had Oklahoma and Clemson in there in that 13 to 14 range indicates it can be done. 
right? And and if you look over the history, so I went and pulled the top five AP teams from the last decade, so the last 10 years, going all the way back to when Tebow was around, um, so 2008 to 2017, and you see the same thing. You see two or three teams where their recruiting rankings are not, very rarely is in the 20s. I mean, if you look, so TCU, when they won the Rose Bowl with, uh, with, uh, with um, Andy Dalton, um, you know, those sorts of things, you'll see guys come in where they're not necessarily top 10 Michigan state when they had Connor cook, but for the most part, teams are either in the teens and they are competing for the playoffs or they're really, really top tier recruiting and they're competing for the playoffs. So what I wanted to do is go look and see, okay, well, what's the common thread for all these teams? And the common thread is quarterback play. I mean, if you look at it, Baker Mayfield, is the reason Oklahoma made the playoffs the last three years, um, or the reason they've been in, in competition for that? Um, you know, he he was just unbelievable all three the last three years at Oklahoma. He played really, really, really well. You look at Clemson with Deshaun Watson and even Taj Boyd before him. Um, so when people point out the Clemson model um, in terms of recruiting in that ten to fifteen range and then still competing and even winning national championships, well, yeah, but it comes with an elite quarterback. And even if you look at Alabama, I mean, so Jalen Hurts. Um, has played really well the last two years. He improved from 2016 to 2017. He's a big reason that Alabama was as good as they were and was able to was able to win the national championship last year. Um, and and so it's it's a rare occurrence that a quarterback is below average, and a team with those sorts of recruiting rankings makes it into the top five. Usually, what ends up happening is is you either have a team with really top flight recruiting like Alabama, where somebody like Jake Coker is the quarterback, and he was basically a game manager, and they were able to win the national championship. Or you've got a team like Clemson or Stanford or something like that where they've got a Baker Mayfield or a Deshaun Watson or or Washington a couple of years ago with Jake Browning um, and, and and having a quarterback who really exceeds expectations and can and can uh, and can lead the team forward. I think part of this article, I don't want to speak for you, but you and I had gotten the question, I think Bill was on it too, of you know, how many wins will it take to, to satisfy the fan base? And it was kind of funny. You and I haven't really talked about it a whole lot, you know, and we didn't expect to come back with the same, but you, you know, you and I basically responded almost with the same answer was it's not so much wins or loss and go back to, to our favorite word from last year. We wanted to see progress in the offense. That's pretty much what we want to see again this year is we just want to see in this brand new offense with Dan Mullen, some progress being made with Felipe Franks for Kyle Trask. Yeah, or or Emory Jones. I mean, yeah. I, I think so. I'm more. I'm less concerned with progress. I'm more concerned with process. So th- the idea being that I don't think it's a good thing at this point to rip quarterbacks in and out. I think we saw last year why. I know you had expressed some concern about Zaire coming in last year as a grad transfer, and all of a sudden you're spreading the reps in the fall amongst multiple quarterbacks. And if you've got, Z- you know, one of the knocks on Zaire was he didn't really know the offense that well, or the coaches didn't feel like he knew the offense that well. But part of the reason he didn't know the offense that well is because, you know, it, it is because he was he was splitting reps all all fall long, Um, which also goes to a process question, which is why is he in the game against Michigan? If he doesn't know the offense very well. (laughs) Um, And so I think, I think there was, you know, we talk about there being a system failure last year with McElwain. And and I think um, that, that part of that was just process. And so the question is, you know, so last year, I think it was clear Del Rio was the best quarterback on the roster. I wrote something before the season saying I thought he was the best quarterback on the roster and that he deserved another chance. Um, people didn't like that I wrote that, but, but that but that was how I felt, and, and I, think it, I think it was proven out through the year. And so, obviously, he got hurt and couldn't play, but um, play a lot of the year. But the fact that he was the third option yeah. worries me about the process. And I think when you look at somebody like Franks, um, you know, the, the question is, I mean, he, he was – um, if you look at all returning SEC starters this year, he's the he ranks the worst in the metric that I've started to use. It's called yards above replacement. It's something that I'm calculating um, from sort of combining both the rushing yardage and the passing yardage on an attempt basis to get a look at efficiency. And Franks was the worst in the SEC last year out of all the returning quarterbacks. I think he was like 58th out of 63 or something in all of the Power Five. Um, so the only team, I mean, Kentucky doesn't have a returning starter. But, you know, Guarantano at Tennessee, um, Miles Brennan, if he plays at LSU, and certainly Burrow might play there. Um, but Kellen Mond, Jake Bentley, Kyle Shermer, Nick Fitzgerald, I mean, all these guys were considerably better than Franks on a per-attempt basis through the air and through the ground. And so he's going to have to improve considerably 
just to be a game manager. And a game manager isn't probably going to be enough with the recruiting classes that have come in the last four years. Again, this isn't even a knock on Mullen's 2019 class because that has no impact on this year. But having a game manager is not going to be enough to, to, to really push Florida into that top 10 um, or maybe even top 15 in the AP poll at the end of the year. And so what I put forward in the article is I think if you don't think there's a clear differentiation in the passing ability of Franks and Trask compared to Emory Jones, that because Emory Jones has the running ability that he showed in high school and because he fits within Mullen's offense and what he wants to do and because they ran a lot of the same concepts in high school with Emory Jones that Mullen's going to want to run, I think it makes sense to start Jones. I think it makes sense to start him early. If you think he's the way you're going to build the program, then it makes sense to have him in there right away. Yeah, Mullen did mention many times as uh, SEC Media Days his first job is to win games. So you can take that a couple ways. You know, is it is it to start Emory because he is a system fit, or is it to start Franks because he has the experience? So you know, it, it's kind of weird labeling where Kyle Trask fits into that because we just don't know enough. But every almost every quarterback conversation to me goes either, and this is not to say Trask won't start. But it's just, I think we know much more about Felipe Franks and Emory Jones just because we've seen more. Yeah, there's no data on Trask. I mean, it's really hard right. to find real film where the team, where the game's actually competitive and have any idea whether he's going to be any good. Now, I mean, he looks accurate in all those things. It seems like he's got, seems like he gets the ball out quicker. At least the offense moves smoother when he's in there. And, and maybe that's a consideration. The mm-hmm. other consideration, just from a quarterback perspective, and, and I had this in the article, was that if you look at Mullen, he's only inherited two quarterbacks So in, who, who played the year before. So if you look at Tyson Lee, he improved considerably under Mullen and his first year at Mississippi State, but still was considerably below average. And if you look at Chris Leak, he got much, much worse under Mullen um, and, and in, in the first year. And then obviously in 2006, with Tebow aiding things, got, got, got a little bit better. But I mean, you know, if you look at that, you say, okay, well, what's the difference? Well, Tyson Lee was a little bit more of a mobile quarterback. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he didn't rush a ton, but he improved his yards per rush from 0.6 to 2.4 from 2008 to 2009. So he went from really basically just getting sacked. And that was what was happening when he was losing yardage to all of a sudden he was putting in two or three or four yards every once in a while on a rushing play and could get a first down on a third and three, something like that. And if you look at Leak, um, he went from 1.3 yards per rush to 0.8 yards per rush, but he ran the ball 105 times in 2005 versus just 61 in 2004. So maybe this is what Mullen's talking about. I mean, maybe he tried to fit the square peg Chris Leak into the round hole and learned from that. Yeah. But if we look at that history, basically the pro style guy struggled and the more dual threat guy got a little bit better. And I think if you were to look at Felipe Franks, I mean, I would call him a pro-style quarterback. I mean, certainly he has some athleticism that I think is hidden because of his long strides, but um, but I would call him more of a pro-style guy. And if you think that's the case, then either Mullen's going to have to learn from his experience with Leak, or you might see the same trend where um, where there's not massive improvement. Now you got now you got something on my mind that I want to go look look at. I want to go look at Leak in 2005, Mullen's first year, and see how many rushing attempts he had before the Georgia game, where we know they changed the offense during the bye week, and see after that, you know, c- compare rushing attempts, uh, maybe per game or or however many he'd been. Because you know, Georgia game's almost in the middle of the season, but uh, I'd be interested to go back and see uh, how much that the rushing changed there. And we'll one yards above one yards above replacement uh, comparison. I wouldn't mind seeing because I saw it out on Twitter today just based on pure stats. Drew Locke and Felipe Franks. And Drew Locke's terrible first season that he played compared to what we just saw from Felipe Franks last year. And a lot of people are hoping Felipe Franks can maybe take that similar jump that we've seen the last couple of years that Drew Locke at Missouri has taken. Yeah, so Drew Locke's yards above replacement was worse than Felipe Franks in his in his freshman year. He only completed 49% of his passes, had a 5.1 yard per average on throwing and 0.5 yards per rush. Um, so it was negative 2.35. And just so people understand the scale, zero is average, 
One is a guy that you'd say, hey, that's a really solid quarterback and maybe even bordering on elite. And two is sort of a Heisman Trophy winner. So if, you, if you're on an attempt basis, if you're getting two more yards than the average quarterback, you're really competing for you're, – you're competing to be the elite of the elite. Um, so when I say Baker Mayfield was carrying Oklahoma, that's because he was up around 3.3 because <laughs> <laughs> he was averaging like 12 yards a throw last year. And yeah. so, you know, that's really, really, really impressive. So Locke improved. Really, the biggest improvement came through the air. So he's gone from 5.1 yards per attempt to 7.8 to 9.5. The one thing I would caution people is that I've gone back and looked at high school stats extensively and tried to correlate that with what happens in in uh, – in college and you know completion percentage translates and Locke went from 49% to 55% to 58% and in high school he completed about 63% of his passes so in 2015 you would have expected a significant uptick in his accuracy just based on what we saw in in high school and certainly i think he averaged something like 15 yards per attempt when he was in high school as well which indicates he was going down the field quite a bit and was accurate i think del rio averaged maybe like 7 or 8 yards an attempt in high school and so that was sort of the knock there is that hey he's got a really high completion percentage but he was but he's completing short throws Locke wasn't doing that if you go back and you look at franks he was in the 57% in high school and was like 55% last year um, in his first year at florida so really he did what we expect him to do and, and that would be my concern in making that comparison is that Locke in 2015 was underperforming what we would expect. And let's be honest, Missouri didn't necessarily have anywhere near the amount of talent in 2015 that Florida did around Franks last year. I mean, we can, we can talk about scheme. We can talk about coaches. We can talk about recruiting. Florida had a heck of a lot better players on their team last year than, than Missouri did in 2015. Um, but anyway, I, th I think Locke, Locke improved. It was sort of regression back to what we would expect. Franks was exactly who I expected him to be last year from a completion percentage standpoint. Now, if he goes down the field more often, he's going to become more efficient. So I think he averaged something like five and a half yards of completion or something last year. And, and that's just, that's where the, that's where the, uh, the issue comes. So he averaged 6.3 yards per attempt and 0 0.3 yards per rush. And, and so that 6.3 yards per attempt needs to be up around nine for, uh, for it to be worth starting someone who uh, who's a pro stock quarterback, and now Drew Lock has Derek Dooley. <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous orange pants he would wear. I wonder if he's gonna break out some ridiculous like gold pants. And it'll be it'll it'll be like it'll be like Georgia Tech yellow or something. Yeah, it'll be some ridiculous. Oh, my, what a terrible hire! I, he I he, he should wear like the Steelers jersey. You know the Steelers jersey that's 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 gold and black and <laughs> and makes him look like bees. He should wear pants like that. I should have said SEC Media Days and asked Barry Odom, what were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh. So it's a funny season, man. It's the funny season. It is. Oh, God. It, six weeks left until our wives don't see us anymore. So, Yeah. I am worn. I'm, I'm, I'm about to go to bed. <laughs> You're such an old man. I am an old man. <laughs> oh, man. Well, All it right. sounds like it sounds like you had a good time. So that, that's that's I the did. important part. I did. Um, absolutely. absolutely. It sounded like you you met a lot of friends of the podcast down there too. A lot of people who uh, who knew who you were. Yeah, it was more uh, more notoriety, I guess, for the you know not trying to high horse or anything here, but yeah, I mean a lot more notoriety than I than I thought uh, out there for it. Uh, got to meet some uh, uh, fans out there who listened to it. Uh, going into the college football hall of fame before Dan Muller was coming in there, I had they had the. Uh, but the blue carpet, what they call it, as, as the coaches were walking in, and all the Gator fans there. So I talked to a few of them there. Uh, good to interact with some of the some of our listeners there, and uh, some of you know some of the media that that knew about it as well. So you know, a guest on the Mark Moses show down there uh, in Melbourne. So uh, I think the interview that I did with him aired today as well. Uh, so you know, just a, a lot of interaction with media, uh, fellow media out there too. So that, that was the fun part about it. No, that's cool. I mean, we, we love interacting with the fans. That's one of the things we really try to do, um, you know, really respond on Twitter and those sorts of things as well. So um, certainly if, if, uh, if you guys get the opportunity to talk to us, we'd love to do that. And, and uh, you know, we appreciate everybody, everybody listening and, and, uh, and spreading the word. Yeah, I know. And uh, 
I guess I'll throw a big special thanks to Bill too, because the last episode of Gators Breakdown was on fire. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you know, when when you just got me on, it, it's <laughs> it's just regular. You you bring on Bill, and all of a sudden everybody gets excited. So that, that's good. He's he's my five star mentor, man. I, I consider myself three star statistical uh, statistical nerd. I'm still learning from the master. Well, that's what happens when we don't get him. You know, every week he he builds and builds and builds this research, and then when we get him on, it's like. <laughs> Well, especially since he he coincided that with coming back on Twitter and right. causing <laughs> problems. So yeah, which is great because there's nothing better than watching him get into a Twitter feud. So, <laughs> oh, that was that was that was classic there. So uh, yeah, a lot a lot of fun. And twenty four seven message board too was uh, the Swamp twenty four seven message board had a a big old good thread about the the, the last episode. Uh, but yeah, I just want to know which which one of us has glossy eyes. I don't know that either. <laughs> that, was, that was such a weird insult, but I, I'm enjoying it, and I'm trying to figure out which one of us he's talking about. So if anybody knows, let us know. Yeah, I don't know if my eyes are even open enough to tell. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we better let you go back to bed there, buddy. Uh, oh, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, all right. Will Miles, you can find him at readreaction.com and on Twitter at WillMilesSEC. I'm the host of Gator Breakdown, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore. SEC. Guys and girls up there, thanks for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown. <laughs>